Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have such an amazing show this week. This is our NCAA show, but it's less about March Madness than about how to stop the madness of March. We are going to speak to the most prominent sports sociologist to ever walk the earth. The author of the seminal 1969 text, Revolt of the Black Athlete, Dr. Harry Edwards. What are the immediate reforms that you put your pen to to make the system a little more just? Well, the first thing I would do is to disband the NCAA. Some situations are so corrupt. I think that some institutional structures are so hidebound and dysfunctional that you have to dismantle them and begin over. I don't think that it's appropriate for the Super 5 conferences and all of the money that they generate to operate under the same auspices as Division three schools or even mid-majors, which oftentimes struggle to maintain and sustain athletic programs that service the entire student body and campus communities, not just in so-called revenue-producing sports, but in so-called minor men's sports and most certainly women's sports. I think that we need a brand new organization that actually operates under the auspices of laws instead of, quote, regulations that are put in place largely to serve the organization itself instead of the student athletes or even the institutions. If you look at some of the history of how some institutions have been treated, it's tragic. The mm -hmm. NC2A needs to be dismantled. They are running, as I stated in 1967, a plantation structure of organization that serves no one really except them and to some extent the major institutions that constitute their constituency. I know that um, uh, Walter Byers, who called me a uh, black militant agitator when I charged NC Toy with operating a plantation structure in his 1995 memoir, called it exactly that, a plantation structure of organization. We have Taylor Branch, who wrote a piece for The Atlantic, saying that the NC2A carries the whiff of the plantation system, and all of a sudden he was, oh my God, what an insight, what a great insight. <laughs> In point of fact, that's 50 years old. Again, a case of history forgotten, denied, dismissed, and buried. So the problem that I have with both the Walter Byers characterization and the Taylor Branch characterization is not that they're stating what I stated 50 years ago. I mean, people say imitation is uh, the greatest form of flattery. Well, it isn't. Theft is the greatest form of flattery. You just take it over and, 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 and put it out there as your own without reference to its original source. I'm not concerned about that. What I'm concerned about is that 50 years later, that characterization can still be made and accurately. So my position on NC2A, if I were put in a position to do what I thought needed to be done, I would dismantle it. Oh my, man after my own heart. But before you hear the Harry Edwards interview in its entirety, and believe me, you want to hear this, I've got some choice words about the NCAA so you know where we stand on Edge of Sports, and you can get the full text of this week's choice words in the description of this podcast. So if you haven't witnessed the 2015 John Oliver rant about the NCAA, you gotta do it. There, there is nothing inherently wrong 
with a sporting tournament making huge amounts of money. But there is something slightly troubling about a billion-dollar sports enterprise where the athletes are not paid a penny, because they aren't. And as the head of the NCAA, Mark Emmett, will tell you, they don't want that to change. And there's not even a salary to debate. They're not employees. They're students. The fact is they're not employees. They're student-athletes. I can't say often enough, obviously, that student-athletes are students. They are not employees. The, the only other people who say they're not employees that much are people who run illegal sweatshops out of their basements. Oh, they're not employees. It, it's a summer camp where they make the same T-shirt over and over again thousands of times. It, it's summer fun year-round. Oliver launches a merciless, unassailable argument that the NCAA and their multi-billion dollar machine of non-profit amateurism is nothing but hypocritical rot. His portrayal of a truly authentic video game deemed March Sadness, involving hungry, exhausted players, narcissistic, rageaholic coaches, and administrators making snow angels in piles of money, should be watched as a precondition before you fill out your bracket. You'll get to enjoy all the fun of being screamed at by a middle-aged millionaire while living in constant fear of losing your scholarship, be it from a career-ending injury, accidentally accepting a free lunch when you're hungry, or directly profiting in any way from the value of your work. Because making money is utterly antithetical to the whole principle of collegiate athletics. But don't take it from us. Take it from the unwilling star of EA's NCAA Basketball 09, Ed O'Bannon. This game is every bit as up as a real thing. You get to create your own Yet there is a non-satirical sadness in seeing John Oliver so thoroughly dissect the hypocrisies and odious sulfur-smelling injustices of the NCAA. Because while perhaps never done as hilariously as John Oliver, it's been said and it's been argued time and time and time again. In fact, an entire generation of activist athletes, from 82-year-old Bill Russell to 27-year-old Richard Sherman, has made this argument. Now, the argument against the NCAA is such an entrenched part of the public record, the burden is frankly now on those who dare stick their heads above ground to defend it. Yet the system not only survives, it thrives. The same college campuses where people are presumably taught about the importance of liberty, debate, and winning the battle of ideas have evidence on their campuses that none of these post-feudal intellectual staples are worth a damn outside the ivory tower. The tragic reality was made plain in 2014 by Northwestern quarterback Kane Coulter, who said, right now the NCAA is like a dictatorship. No one represents us. The only way things are going to change is if players have a union. Coulter tried to organize a union, and the response was not only an ugly campaign against the project organized by his coach, but state legislatures in Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin passing laws to make sure that players could not organize themselves. Thank you, Scott Walker and Rick Snyder and John Kasich, three of the most odious people in government right now who all made a priority of making sure that college athletes could not have their rights. Yet despite the NCAA's well-funded efforts, neither Coulter nor the presence of an organized struggle is done. Just ask the football players at Missouri. Look, it's so damn easy to expose the NCAA, but it'll never be enough because it is immune to argument and utterly oblivious to derision. Taylor Branch, John Oliver, hell, the reincarnated genetic splicing of Jonathan Swift, Dorothy Parker, and our guest this week, Dr. Harry Edwards, could never bring even a hint of red to NCAA President Mark Emmert's cheeks. It is, as Kane Coulter described, a dictatorship, except its great weapon is not torture, it's the utter absence of shame. 
And now, our interview with one of the most prominent academics in this country, longtime sports sociologist. Hell, there might not even be a thing called sports sociology without this man. Dr. Harry Edwards. What's your immediate thought association to March Madness? Well, uh, of course, uh, the thing I'm most concerned about is the exploitation of the young athletes who are creating all the money and who, for the most part, um, with the exception of a few who uh, are one and done uh, lottery type guys and those who go on at some point in their career to have some uh, money earned at the NBA level, I'm very much concerned about the exploitation of the athletes. And I think that given the existing political climate where we have pretty much the same kinds of circumstances framing political activism among athletes today, as was the case in the 1960s, only today it's Black Lives Matter. Back then it was the Black Power Youth Movement. I think it's only a matter of time before uh, you have a Final Four where four teams determine that we'll come out and play when the NC2A and the sponsors and the networks and the coaches association, athletic directors association come into this building and talk to us about our share of the millions, tens of millions of dollars that we are creating and generating for everybody else. I think inevitably it's going to come to that. Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, maybe not even the year after, but ultimately this train is going to leave the track. And so every time that, March Madness comes up. Uh, I look at the madness of mm. the exploitive situation that um, these young athletes uh, are in, and the fact that it, uh, it 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 continues. Now, you just mentioned the similarities between uh, the '60s and today, and you, of course, have been around top college athletics for for 50 years. Um, first as an athlete, then, of course, um, as a professor, as an advisor, as a speaker, all the rest of it. What are the biggest ways that the NCAA amateur system has changed over the last five decades? The rule book has thickened considerably. The constraints on athlete freedom, they've doubled down on those constraints. The exercise of power has become more and more arbitrary. They talk about NC2A laws, but they are not laws. They are simply imposed regulations that benefit principally those who wield and control decision-making authority and power and who control the money under the auspices of the NC2A. So if anything, the chains on these uh, so-called amateur athletes have become shorter. The uh, regulations uh, used to constrain and control them have become more draconian and less judicious. Nobody can tell you the auspices under which one team gets a penalty where they lose scholarships, they lose postseason opportunities, but another team gets absolutely nothing at all or it, their penalties are deferred mm. until the next season and imposed on a group of athletes that had nothing to do with the original issues. And, of course, we saw that at Ohio State. We've seen it in a number of other instances, and nobody can explain the auspices under which those kinds of decisions are made other than economic expediency. So the situation has, um, has become tremendously worse. And I think at some point, I mean, even Rip Van Winkle eventually woke up. <laughs> These young athletes are going to wake up 
and they're going to go to a Final Four, or they're going to, on another, in another sport, they're going to go to a national championship football game and say, hey, okay, we'll take the field when we get somebody in here to rearrange the financial distributions in terms of all of the money that we create, of which we have absolutely no share. Mm. That is the madness that continues to um, totally befuddle me. It is politically unsustainable. It's going to become increasingly organizationally unmanageable, and it most certainly is morally unconscionable in a society where everyone has the right to market their capabilities, skills, and so forth, and receive at least a defensible return for the contributions that they make. Now, uh, of course, last fall at Missouri, you had the collision of the issues that you're talking about with the Black Lives Matter movement, with a a team that was 69% black exercising their power in solidarity with a student body that was just 7% black and subject to all sorts of of racism and and complaints. Uh, A question for you is, what was your reaction when you heard what the Missouri football players were doing? Well, my first reaction was what took so long. But of course, you know, in 1967, I organized a black athlete revolt at San Jose State that resulted in the cancellation of a football game between San Jose State and what was then Texas Western, now the University of Texas at El Paso. And the basic issues were essentially the same. A climate of racism and discrimination on the campus. I raised the question of why should we play as athletes where we cannot work as coaches and administrators, even in the athletic department, over the sports that we are dominant in, not just in terms of productivity, but in terms of numbers when it comes to something like track and field, for example. We're the leading scorers and rebounders on the basketball team, the leading scorers and the stars on the football team. But yet there had never even been an African-American interviewed for a job at San Jose State in 1967. And we thought that that was unconscionable. And so we organized athletes on both sides at Texas Western and San Jose State said that they would not cross a picket line at a game which was um, – protesting racism uh, and a climate of uh, racism on campus and racism and discrimination in the athletic department. So the game ultimately was canceled. Well, the power potential exercised by the student-athletes at University of Missouri in collaboration with the students on campus, that was a game plan, if you will, that was 50 years old. And so as I looked at it, the thing that surprised me was that it was 50 years in coming, and mm. I think that it was long overdue. But if you go back and look at the history of the San Jose State movement in 1967, for which, by the way, I was fired from my job at San Jose State, which ironically um, this year is giving me um, uh, honorary Doctor of Humane Letters degree, mm. and uh, I'm going to be the commencement speaker at the, at the <laughs> San Jose State graduation. Uh, it, it's 50 years old, but the effort at Missouri. That template was cast uh, 50 years ago. Well, proud tradition, like when uh, Spellman brought back Howard Zinn when they fired him for standing with uh, the students doing sit-ins, and they brought him back decades later to be the commencement speaker. That's actually a beautiful thing. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, America, uh, I mean, this is what the Bill of Rights tells us. America does, sometimes doesn't get it right 
the first time around, but there's a second time. This is why we have to be respectful of uh, each other's opinions and so forth, even when we adamantly disagree, because ultimately everybody is going to have to come around the table and find a new center, find a new way to move forward. And uh, we don't want to have... um, too much hatred, too many bodies piling up that we have to climb over to get to the table. Right. I, I, I got to ask you, though, um, g- given your, your amazing history, when, when Missouri went down, there were so many news broadcasts that called what they were doing unprecedented, as if it had never happened before. I mean, to, when you hear that, does that make you just want to, like, put your foot through your TV? I mean, because you're part of this no. history that shows that it happened before. No, I'm, I'm understanding of that. First of all, the news media does not report history. If you want to understand history, go to the library, go online and do some research. If you want to see what's the latest sexist, sensational storyline, then turn on the network news or turn on uh, TMZ or turn on uh, some other station and let the, um, uh, you know, the young and the blonde and the beautiful explain to you what's happening in the world based upon what they're reading off of a prompter or a card uh, on the desk in front of them. No, I'm not surprised and I'm, I'm not upset. So much history is denied, ignored, buried, forgotten, because what is history a lot of times is dependent upon authorship. History is one of those concepts like progress and profit. At some point, it comes down to who's keeping the books. And uh, uh, all too often what we find is that even critical history is ignored because it does not jive with some prevailing or authoritative ideological perspective or commitment or understanding or preference. And that is what has happened so often when it comes, of course, to African-American history, which we talk about as if it is not a part of American Mm. history, a part of that ongoing fabric. And so when something happens, we look at the media where people are hired because of what they look like and all other kinds of superfluous features and characteristics. And when they say, well, geez, this is unprecedented, never seen anything, never thought that would happen. They don't even know their own history. So, no, I'm not upset. I understand how we got there, and I understand what the dynamics are that are involved in that regard. By the way, The uh, Revolt of the Black Athlete, the book that I wrote in 1969, essentially discussing that whole uh, movement in that era, right up through the Olympic Project and Human Rights, is being reissued because 50 years later, a number of publishers have found that, you know what, this is not just history. This is what's going on today, and we need to get this back out. So they're going to reissue the book. That's fantastic. And if, if I may say so, I, I hope they also consider uh, reissuing your 1980 uh, memoir, The Struggle That Must Be, because that also speaks to a lot of the issues more broadly that Absolutely. we're dealing with today. I, I'm, please tell me there's maybe plans for that as well. Yeah, they're going to. Uh, that's going to be reissued along with a second volume that I'm writing, which literally covers everything, but not just from 1981 up to the present. I mean, all of the work that I've done with the NFL in terms of establishing programs and support of athletes, the college reentry program, degree completion program, post-career occupational preparation, family and personal counseling, none of that is covered in uh, the struggle that must be, and most certainly not the effort that Bill Walsh and I made to develop the minority coaches uh, and women's uh, outreach and internship program that 
you know, I mean, Marvin Lewis was one of our first uh, interns. A lot of minorities that got to be head coaches came through that uh, outreach and um, internship program. So all of that will be covered in the book, of course, right up through the University of Missouri. Fantastic. And speaking of, of Missouri, I mean, in the last couple of years, we've had the Northwestern example where players tried to unionize and got stymied in the courts for years and then knocked Ed down. O'Banion. Albanian, and then you've got Missouri, where they so quickly got results just by folding their arms. Now, you've, you've called this the civil rights movement of our times, and I, I, I got to ask you, if you were advising, would you say the Missouri route is just far more clearly effective than players going the Northwestern route and trying to file papers with the NLRB? No, you need both, because the Missouri action is an individual action that impacted that campus. The ultimate result is yet to be determined because even though they forced the resignation of the president and the chancellor, the same people who put that president in and that chancellor in are the ones who are making the decision about who will be the next president and the next chancellor Mm. and the next football coach. And until you are able to actually exercise that level of decision-making power or at least have substantial and influential input into that level of power and decision-making, your gains are always in peril. There's always a pressure toward retrenchment, toward reestablishing the status quo, which, of course, happened at San Jose State. So 50 years later, there is now a movement at San Jose State among minority students making demands that are very similar to the demands that I made 50 years ago and forced cancellation of a football game over. Mm. So the situation at, at Missouri, impacts the immediate circumstances on that campus and may indeed be taken as a shot across the bow of all similarly situated and functioning institutions. But the reality is that the power that exists is still in the hands of those who uh, made all of these um, decisions to begin with that created the circumstances that generated, that precipitated the rebellion. The kind of thing that's happening at Northwestern, the kind of thing that O'Banion Uh, was uh, pushing have to do with institutional change that gives permanent status and to some extent influence to athletes in terms of, in the O'Banion case, the use of their images, the use of their uh, names, and uh, in the case of the uh, Northwestern group, union-type power, which means that they're sitting around the table making decisions at least in terms of what immediately impacts the circumstances, outcomes, conditions of work, and so forth of athletes. So in point of fact, we need both. You know, drama is great. Uh, Immediate gains are great. But ultimately, we're talking about long-term shifts in power, influence, and input. And I think that under those circumstances, the O'Banion and the Northwestern efforts, they're critically important and imperative, even as we fight these immediate battles, such as at the University of Missouri. I just have now three quick hit questions, just because I I would love your wisdom for uh, my listeners on this. The first question is straight up, man, how could I not ask Dr. Harry Edwards your reaction to Donald Trump, the violence at the rallies, what you think it signifies, what it says about the United States, and what you think the proper response should be? What Donald Trump says is that we are 
an extremely volatile society that the number one break, the number one split in American society is still race and to a certain extent class. It says that there are those, as has always been the case in the past, who are willing to exploit that for personal political gain. Uh, Donald Trump is just the latest. George Wallace was one of those uh, kinds of people. The Republican Party today, to a large extent, going back to Nixon and the Southern strategy, uh, have capitalized on that separation of class and race, and that's something that we simply have to recognize. I do not think that the proper response is to fight fire with fire. I don't think that to call Donald Trump a racist, uh, crypto-Nazi degenerate is appropriate. I'm not concerned about Donald Trump. I'm not concerned about what he is or might not be. What I am concerned about are the people who are frustrated enough, desperate enough, hurting enough, and so forth to follow him. Those are the people that we're going to have to sit down to the table with and say, okay, what are our best options in terms of resolving the issues and so forth that we're confronted with? I'm not concerned about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a clown. We, we need to uh, look at the real legitimate frustrations, the pain that so many people feel that they would be driven to support this kind of uh, hucksterism, this kind of uh, performance. Uh, so my response is, this is a difficult situation. This is a, could become a volatile and dangerous situation. But what we have to do is to realize that those people who are following him are Americans too. How do we embrace, how do we engage, how do we respect their pain, concerns, and issues, even if they are, quote, racist, unquote, and try to get them to the table with us to begin to resolve some of these concerns? Because mm. in point of fact, the world is pulling against all of us. Mm. So we need, to, we need to get a grip and get on with it. No, I'm, I'm not surprised that Donald Trump, the only thing that uh, surprises me is why he didn't show up earlier. Mm. So next question is, people may know that you've worked for years with the San Francisco 49ers. New coach is Chip Kelly. I was in Oregon and saw Chip Kelly invite someone very close to your history, uh, John Carlos from the 68 Olympics. I saw Chip invite John to speak to the team. I saw Chip say the most amazing things about John. I saw John talk to the players and really reach them. And that's why I was so surprised when a lot of those Eagles were talking about Chip Kelly uh, being racist. And you're with the 49ers. Chip Kelly's hired on. And so I th who, what better person than you to ask what your measure is of Chip Kelly? Well, I go back to a relationship with Chip Kelly before John Carlos was called in when uh, the LeGarrette Blount situation took place oh, that's where right. that's right. that was this uh, where he threw this punch uh, after the Boise State game. The first thing that Chip Kelly did was to get on the phone and call me and said, come up, we need help up here on how we're going to handle this. Chip wanted to make sure that LeGarrette Blunt wasn't just turned out on the street, but at mm -hmm. the same time, he had to deal with the situation, not just in terms of LeGarrette, but in terms of a number of his players, black and white, where they had crossed the line in terms of what the University of Oregon felt was appropriate behavior. And so he called me up, and I was actually up in Oregon for a week. And uh, we talked about LeGarrette, how to get him on a program that, one, 
would make sure that there was sufficient response to what he did, but at the same time, that would get him back up on his feet and in a situation where he was not on the street, where he became a legitimate NFL prospect and, and with some record of having gone back and tried to get back on track. And that's important of fact what we did. LeGarrette Blunt is in the NFL now principally because of the efforts of Chip Kelly. When the Riley Cooper situation broke out at the Eagles, the first thing Chip did was to get on the phone to Dr. Edwards, how do we handle this? What do we do? And of course, uh, my response was he had to sit down with his leaders in, in his locker room, Michael Vick, Deshaun Jackson, Shady McCoy, and so forth, and uh, let them know that we have a choice. We can either allow this situation to fragment, shatter, and destroy our locker room in our season, or we can choose not to be offended, to put this where it belongs, which is on Riley Cooper, have him clean up his act, come in and apologize to everybody, get his pads on, get back out on the field, and let's get together so we can start winning some football games. We hear worse than what he said on rap records and so forth. We can choose not to be offended because there are things here that we cannot afford to have disturbed by this madness and nonsense. That is important of fact what they did. And even as Deshaun and Shady left the building, looking back over their shoulder saying, well, Chip doesn't like star black players, he called and said, Harry, how do I handle this? And I simply told him, there are some things that you can't handle. You simply have to allow them to go and don't, 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 how do you prove that it's cold outside? How do you prove that it's too warm outside? You can't do it. So you do what you have to do, and in Philadelphia, let things take their course, which they did, and ultimately he ended up with us. So I have no problem with Chip Kelly. The thing that I can say, has he made decisions that I would not have made? Probably, but every coach that I have ever been associated with, including Bill Walsh, who I did a lot of work with, made decisions that he probably regrets. But he doesn't use me like a lawyer. He doesn't commit the crime and then come to me and say, hey, get me out of this. Before he makes a decision, typically he will call me and say, hey, what are my options? And that's what he's doing at the 49ers. So I have no problem with Chip. He's human. And if Chip Kelly is a racist, you know what? I would hope that all racists were like that because we can work with that. Uh, what we can't work with is, is the guy that you can't even talk to about some of the actions that he takes along those lines. And um, unfortunately, we still have those to deal with in NFL as well. Dr. Edwards, this is a, a little embarrassing, but I've wanted to ask you this for as long as I, I've known you and known of you. You're in pretty amazing physical shape. And I'm not even saying for a man of your age. What is your exercise regimen? How do you fit it in? How do you make it a part of your daily life? Well, the first thing that I did is that I was smarter than everybody else. I picked the right parents. Um, <laughs> my father was about six, three and a half, about 235 pounds on the day that he died. I mean, he had a 35 inch waist. So part of it is genetics. The second thing is that I've been lucky enough in terms of diseases and accidents and so forth to not be afflicted in that regard. The third thing is that I made a decision in 1964, rather than going to trial for the Minnesota Vikings, which had me on that draft board, or the San Diego Chargers, or even going to trial for the L.A. Lakers in basketball, I instead uh, took my Woodrow Wilson Fellowship and went to Cornell University. So for the next four years, rather than taking hits and hitting other people, or running up and down a basketball court, dragging some other 265, 270-pound uh, power forward or center up and down the court for four hours, I uh, 
uh, was sitting in the library, really lifting nothing any heavier than my pencil, uh, and doing a lot of walking up hills. If you know anything about Cardell's campus, yeah. uh, so that worked out for me. So, and then of course, as I got older, I was fortunate enough to uh, marry up with a woman that was uh, much brighter than I was in terms of just basic things like what you should eat and what you should be doing and walking and going to the gym. How did you meet your wife? I, g- I got to know. She was a student at San Jose State when I was organizing athletes and everything in 1967. And uh, I'm uh, sitting in my office, um, and all of a sudden this uh, 19-year-old woman comes in and says, what can I do to help? You know? Wow. And uh, ultimately, of course, you know, it came down to a decision. So um, I told her, look, you finish your degree, you finish your education. I'm going back to Cornell and, and finish my PhD and then we'll we'll see where we are when we come back. And when I came back, she was sitting right there. She said, hey, I've finished not just my BA, I've finished my master's degree and uh, I'm still I'm still here. So um, we've been together now for 47 years. Got three wonderful kids, a, a lawyer, a medical doctor um, and a computer and IT specialist. Uh, so in that regard, I did better than I could have ever imagined. Uh, 47 years, same woman, same house, and it's been wonderful. Wow. Dr. Harry Edwards, not a dry eye in the house over here, man. My producer's uh, got a big (laughs) hanky out right now. So, hey, thank, thank you so much, my friend. Hey, I appreciate you, bro. What's the music that sustains you? What do you listen to when you work? What is the music that keeps you going? I listen to a lot of jazz. I mean, I'm straight ahead, old school, Miles. The guys that got me through Cornell, the guys that got me through my uh, early adolescent and teenage years in East St. Louis, Illinois, where I was uh, where I was raised. I mean, I literally grew up about a mile from where Miles used to practice on his grandmama's back porch up on Division uh, Avenue in East St. Louis. I mean, you could pass by and hear Miles practicing his horn. When I really, really, I'm ready to settle down and settle in. I put on some Miles Davis, uh, the 58 sessions where he had that great band. And um, so I'm, I'm a jazz guy more than anything. Wow. Dr. Harry Edwards, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. Anytime, Dave. Anytime. Appreciate it. That was Dr. Harry Edwards, Professor Emeritus at Cal Berkeley, where he taught for decades and uh, by the way, I have a friend who went to Berkeley and she couldn't get into Dr. Edwards' class. He would deliver these three-hour lectures. She would sneak in just to sit and listen to the lectures. No class credit. That's who Dr. Harry Edwards is. That's who you got a taste of this week. And I'll tell you this, Dr. Harry Edwards, congratulations on getting that doctorate from San Jose State. Long overdue. Revenge is sweet. Now, our Just Stand Up Award this week, it's going to go to a friend of mine, 
named Rory Fanning. Now, who's Rory Fanning? Rory Fanning is a former Army Ranger. Rory Fanning is somebody who served with Pat Tillman. Rory Fanning is someone who just wrote Craig Hodges, the great Chicago Bulls memoir. It's coming out this fall. It's called Long Shot. I read an early draft of it. It's brilliant. So Rory Fanning, very much connected to the sports world. Rory Fanning is also somebody who was there in Chicago last Friday at the University of Illinois, Chicago, where Donald Trump was supposed to speak. And Rory Fanning walked among the crowd with a big sign that read, Army Vets Against Trump and Racism. And Rory Fanning walked up and down the aisle wearing his camouflage jacket, keeping that sign high. And people pushed him, people punched him, and he stood up to them. He stood and looked right back at him, and they scurried away just like their hero Donald Trump scurried away when he was confronted in Chicago. I mean, Donald Trump, seriously, he's like the roach when you turn on the light in the kitchen. All of a sudden, bam, bam, bam. He's under the fridge. So I want to give a big shout out to Rory Fanning. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for making the sports world part of your political life. And let's keep the fight going because Donald Trump deserves nothing less than to have his coronation in the Republican Party disrupted. It's dangerous and people got to stand up. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the NCAA Edge of Sports podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Edge of Sports, and you can always send us email to edgeofsports at slate.com. I read every one. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice so you never miss an episode. Last week, we had a tremendous conversation with a living legend, Mick Foley, so please go back and listen to that show if you missed it. Edge of Sports is produced by Dan Bloom for the Panoply Network. Our intern is Dustin Foote. Please rate the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Please leave comments. All that stuff helps a ton. Tell a friend. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.